Hi, this is Tony Bronigle, and you're listening to Talking Blues. What I missed last night saying, and, I, and it's funny you go back and you think, what would you say when you're accepting an award? And I didn't give it that much thought. Oh, the, uh, about, a, about a week ago, I thought, what if you win? What are you going to say? And I went, oh, well, I mean, it, it has to come from a place of humility, obviously. Right. And, um, and, and it did. I was really choked up, and I barely got the words out. And I just wanted to thank everybody at, at the, the BMAs for all their hard work. And then I wanted to thank all the fans, because if it weren't for the support of the fans, this wouldn't all be happening. And I wanted to congratulate all the other drummers, because I, I never take any type of attitude like over anybody else. I just think we're all we're all musicians. We're all here living out our passion right. and, and and what we love doing. And it's we should all make sure we get along. There's a certain amount of competitiveness, but I don't never, you know, fine. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, you know. And I and I and I, I wanted to cite all my influences last night. And then I realized I woke up this morning and went, You dummy, Bernard Purdy was in the audience. And just like Curtis Elgato called that wee Willie Walker, I should have called that Bernard Purdy in the audience. It means that much to you. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Jerry Jamat was in the audience, the bass player that played with Bernard and all the, the Aretha Franklin records. I mean, that was history right there. And it's just like, and I was in an opportunity to say something. You know, I mean, they gave Jerry Jamat, Rick Estrin, uh, they gave Jerry Jamat his props. But Bernard was sitting there, you know, right. and uh, and and I could have done that. Plus, well, I'm in Memphis, and I could have done, you know, I would have said, I would have given props to the Freddie Belo and and the chess drummers, you know, and Cliff James and Clinton James and all those cats and 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 Sonny, uh, what's his name? Oh, I'm blanking. Wow, <laughs> Memphis weather. Uh, and then you get up to Al Jackson Jr. and uh, and and all the the guys in, in the Memphis drummers and um, I'm blanking completely. And then the New Orleans drummers and then uh, John Jabo Starks and 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 uh, uh, it's just amazing, you know. And I just didn't give tribute to all these people like I should have, you know. But that could have taken a long time too. It would have, it would have, because <laughs> I would probably sat there and fumble the names like I'm doing it right now. Yeah. Well. If if things work out right, if you just wait forty five minutes, he should be coming through the door. I'll be you telling can say that in I'll person. Tell him. Okay, um, I'm talking to Tony Bronigo. Is that the proper pro- Bronigo? Yes. And what what nationality is that? Where does that name come? That's from? That's German. It's from uh, the the part of Germany that has changed borders many times in, with France, uh, the Alsatian area. Okay. So the name is German, but even the Germans go. Bronigal, what does this mean? You know, I have lots of German friends. And is there any German culture in your family, or is that? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, my grandparents still spoke German uh, when they didn't want you to understand what they were saying. <clears throat> my father spoke a few words of it, and, and my, my mother didn't, and, and it was never really used around the house. And other than you know, I knew certain you know in cultures certain words, grandma and aunt, things like that. Right. And um. Um. And they were very German people. They were country folk. They were very simple, you know, farmers and carpenters and things like that, you know. So I grew up in a simple situation, you know, with, you know, there was never a lot of money around. And I mean, maybe at one point in my life, my father, we became lower middle class, you know, and that was about it. So, you know, I wasn't given a lot of support to do what I wanted to do. I was just like, oh, okay, well, this is what he's choosing to do right now. But so, there was no backlash. I mean, they didn't 
they didn't talk you out of things. No, they tried to. I was kind of an A student kind of kid, you know, uh, talkative and outspoken. And they kind of thought, well, he needs to be a doctor or a lawyer because he'll be able to assert himself out there in the world. And I made great, I made really good grades, A's and B's. And and, uh, and everyone thought, well, he's going to be a doctor. And of course, my grandmother thought I should be a priest. And my aunt said, you should be a lawyer because you can out-argue anyone, you know, in the family. And, and I actually went to chiropractic college for a couple of years and studied, you know, because that was, I was kind of talked into that out of high school. And, and now I look back and I wish I would have just gone straight into music school because I could have gone to a small music school and just gotten everything I needed, all the theory that I needed, which I later on absorbed. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was never really encouraged to do it at all. And, but nothing stopped me. Um, I should introduce you properly as as a drummer, producer, and and I just read that you're an actor as well. Uh, I have done some <laughs> acting, yeah. 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 Um, and I mean, I know you as a drummer, but you're probably better known as a producer. Is that? Well, now I'm. Uh, you know, I just won Drummer of the Year, but uh, yeah. and and uh, Blues Drummer of the Year, and but I've been up for it at least ten times, and uh, which is you know, I just I always say I'm. Just happy I get invited to the party, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and I've seen you here many, many years. I mean, yeah. you're, you're like part of the scenery. I am kind of part of the scenery, yeah, absolutely. And I have a lot of connections here and a lot of friends. Uh, I started producing about 18, 19, 20 years ago, something like that, when I, when I, the concept of producing first came in right around that time. Can, and, can we, I mean, I'm sorry, but just to go sequentially, can we just go back to how the passion for music started with you? Oh, um, I was, you know, my father played country music, played guitar, and so uh, they used to go to dances, and of course the family, anytime there was a family gathering, somebody got a guitar or two out, and they'd sing, you know, old country songs and folk songs, I guess, from back then, and maybe some German songs. So I was around it all, and I was always like the little bouncing kid who liked it, you know, and... uh, my cousin had a drum kit, and I was just dying to get on it. And he would, he'd let me get on it for two minutes. Go, that's enough, <laughs> you know. And I go, mm, you know, make some kind of a face or whatever, and get shoved away from it. And then, was, I, just one day, I, I, I my, my aunt, that my aunt, my cousin used to babysit for me, and so I was exposed to country music in the beginning, as I said, and through my father. And my cousin Betty used to listen to the Black Stations in the two in, two stations in Houston that I grew up with, KCOH and KYOK. All day long she listened. So that hit me at a very early age, probably about nine or ten, somewhere around there. And um, when I exposed that to my father, he was kind of shocked, like, where did you get that music? And I went, <laughs> Cousin Betty. <laughs> I blamed her. I've told her since as well. And then uh, right around the age of so, 12, 13, I, I finally got a chance to, I wanted to get on the drum kit bad, and I and I, I still didn't. I had drumsticks, and I would play pots and pans in the backyard, and everybody's going, what's he doing? What, why, what is he, what's he out there beating on things? I couldn't help it. I had to hit things and make that noise. What, what was it about the drums? I mean, was it wanting to get on the drum kit, or was it you loved the drum, the drums that you heard? Somehow I was driven to that. I was driven to the sound and the touch and the feel, and my personality is that of a drummer. And, you know, drummers have a certain type of personality. You have to 
you got to want to do that. That's, right. You know, you, you, it's, it's, it's an energy that's, that's kind of like a fire inside. And, and it's, it, it just buzzes in you. And you have to use it. And if you don't use it, it's not healthy for you. As a drummer, I have to play drums. I really have to play drums or I feel strange. And I've always, I don't know, when, when, it, when, the, when the, the bug hit when I was young, I was hanging out with my best friend neighbor, Willie Ornelas, and he sold me my first drum kit when I was 15 years old. And it was kind of a funny story the whole day. I don't know if I can tell it quick unless you, how much time you have. Well, we have half an hour till okay. Bernard comes by, I think. I, I was sitting there at his, in his kitchen. I had just rode my motor scooter over to a lawnmower shop and sold it for $40. And I was buying his, an old drum kit of his for $100. And he was giving me seven days to come up with $100. And, or else it was going to be 150 he said. <laughs> Bad deal. But. And the phone rings. And he picks up the phone. And he says, uh, hi, Willie here. Yeah, he says, uh, do I have a gig tonight? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I have a gig. I've, I'm working already. He goes, do I know any other drummers, Willie says. And, and he looks across the table at me, and he goes, with his eyes open, like, you? He said, you want a gig? And I went, I, I have to ask my mom and dad. I, I, I don't know what to say. And so he puts, he gets back on the phone to the guy. And he says, listen, we'll call you back in a little while. Hangs up the phone. He goes, you better go ask your mom and dad. But wait a second. At this point, are you not just... I'm 15. Pot, pots and pans? Like, have you ever... I had just bought that drum kit from him, and I had been playing in his home with him after school. I'd okay, go down okay. there, and I could play. I could play the beats, because we were listening to Bobby Bland and Ray Charles and you know everything at the time you know that was coming out. Right. And um, Netta James and Jimmy Reed and all, all the stuff that was like topical black music that was pouring over into the market, out of the black market even as well. And um, so I could play enough. And so he's so I went begged my mom and dad. Both said no. Several several times, and I was one of those kids that couldn't take no for an answer if I was really driven. And finally, I said to my dad, "said All right, all right, all right, but just listen to me. A couple of rules here." He says, um, "He says I don't want you taking any funny cigarettes from anybody because he thought maybe I'd be smoking pot or something in a club." Really? He's don't take any funny cigarettes and don't hang out with any of the women. I said, Dad, I'm 15. <laughs> he, well, I still don't want you. And I went, okay. And so, and then he goes, how are you going to get there? I said, well, I'll work out all the other details. All I needed was a yes. I went back to Willie's. Right. Willie called the guy up. The guy said, sure. Uh, Willie says, but you got to come pick him up. And they go, well, where? Well, pick him up at my house. And well, they knew where Willie lived because they'd played with him before. So these guys pull up in front of the car, uh, the house, and I'm standing there, and I'm 15, and I've looked 10 because, oh, he's looked young for my age. And they pull up and they go, hi, we're looking for Tony. I went, hi, I'm Tony. <laughs> you know, and so uh, the guy was like completely surprised. And so he's well, he loaded up my drums, put them in the trunk and everything. I get in the back seat and they're like looking at each other. The bass player is over on the passenger side and I haven't seen him, his face yet. And Charlie was driving. <clears throat> I get in the back seat and I can barely see over the thing because I'm a little tiny guy. And um, Charlie goes, well, uh, how long have you been playing? I went, well, not very long, you know. And it was, well, where have you been playing? You been playing anywhere? I go. I played at a sock hop at school in my cousin's garage, and uh, you know stuff like that. So, and they're like going, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and the, Charlie goes, "So are you trying to tell me this is your first gig?" And I said, 
yes, it is. You know, and about that time, the bass player, who I didn't realize until that moment, had a glass eye. And he turns around, and he looks at me, he goes, no shit, like that. And I, w- and I was like, ah, I'm scared, you know. And, uh, and so they both started kind of laughing. And so they grilled me on, what songs do you know? Do you know how to play the dog beat? And you know, I said, I know, I know this one and that one. I know how to play that six, eight. I know, I know how to play a shuffle. I know, and I know, I know all these instrumentals. And, uh, you know, and, I, and I'd learned them as, as a kid by being in Willie's front room and listening to records. And the guy said, "Wow, well, okay, I guess we got no choice. You're on, you're our drummer for the night." And we get the, to the gig, and I set up and set up on the stage, and I I don't know where to go, what to do. I'm 15. I've never been in a nightclub on my own before. They're all walking around, smoking cigarettes, drinking beers, talking to women, talking to women, and I like I don't know what to do. I'm sitting here holding my drumsticks, like when do we start? And about that time, this uh, this uh, this Mexican guy, horn player, comes in. I think his name was Armando or something like that. And he, he walks in at the last second. We're on stage ready to play. Opens up, grabs a saxophone. Charlie introduces us. Uh, Armando, this is Tony, our drummer for the night. Armando said, hey, nice to meet you, Tony. He didn't think, he didn't cop an attitude or anything about me being new at all. He just goes, he goes, nice to meet you, man. He goes, nighttime is the right time. We started playing. And I'm, next thing is like diving off a cliff. I'm going, I'm playing music. That's how it started. That was my first gig. And how was the gig? It was great. They asked me back at the end of the night next the following weekend. And and did you pretty well not screw up? I did fine. At wow. the end of the gig, they drove me home, paid me $15, which is a lot of money for a kid back then. And what went towards your drum set? And went, that went home, went on the dresser, went gave it to Willie. Next weekend, I did two gigs with him, $12 a night. I took 24 to Willie. Before the week was over, I ended up ended up coming up with the extra thirty dollars or whatever I needed, or thirty five or whatever, and paid him off by Saturday. At what point did you think you were going to do this as a career? I never did. You never did. I never thought about that. Not then. No. Okay. But at one See, point, I'm following a, following the the Dateline here, I went on to continue. I finished high school and I went to college for a couple of years, but I never stopped playing, even if it was weekends and. I mean, I started playing right after that in nightclubs. I played in a strip club for a few months, and and I was going to Catholic high school. You know what I mean? And I was like, my parents didn't know it was a strip club at first. Of course. And that was another funny story of them discovering that I was playing in a strip club, and I had to lie my way out of that one. It was really funny. I mean, my my dad drove me to work one night because I was I didn't have a car. So guys in the band would pick me up, and one night nobody could pick me up, and my father found out I needed a ride. So. He goes, I'll give you a ride. So I said, no, 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 don't worry. I, I, I'll find a way. He goes, no, I'll give you a ride. I said, all right. I'm going, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? So we drive to the club, and we're almost there. And I said, you can let me out here at the corner. I'll just walk. It's right there. I didn't want him to see where the yeah. place was. About 10 doors down in a shopping center mall kind of thing. So my dad said, no, I'll drive you there. He drives there, and I'm just, I remember just sound in the car and my fear of oh my god my dad's gonna see the sign topless dancers with a marquee of lights going around so i he pulls up and my my father sees the the, the marquee he says topless dancers a go-go blah 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 polka dot lounge whatever it was called and uh my dad says son they, they got strippers in there and i said yes dad silence you know, you watch some women take their clothes off? Yes, Dad. 
son, you know, that's a mortal sin. You're a Catholic. And I went, well, you know, I talked to Father so-and-so at, at school, and he says if you didn't get aroused, it's not a mortal sin. I was lying. <laughs> and my dad goes, you talked to Father? I go, yes, 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 I did, I did. Okay. Never said another word. <laughs> Four nights later, three nights later, my aunt, my aunt finds out about it. My aunt was funny, and she says, oh, my God, your dad, Albert, saw it, dropped Tony off and found out that Tony's playing at a strip club. My aunt could care less. And they all laughed about it. She called my mom. She said, we're going to go see Tony play Friday night. You and Albert want to go along? And my mom says, honey, I don't know if he'll... Albert may not want to go do that. And sure enough, they get home from work. My dad, they get in the car and they drive over. And I I see him walk in and stripper comes on. Stripper comes out. I look over at the table. My dad's not at the table. My dad was a rascal. Okay. My dad's not at the table and I don't see him. And then I look over at one of the columns around the dance floor and he's sticking his head out like this taking a real special look at the stripper (laughs) so I went what's he doing and I'm playing I'm going what is that and so he goes back sits back at the table I take a break and I walk over to my aunt goes honey you sounded great you you really it's great you can really play drums you're good you know and uh, I said well thank you and so she said and I looked at my dad and said, hey, Dad, so what do you think of that? He goes, I wasn't watching, son. Lying. <laughs> That's kind of how my, I got going. And, and, and after that, I played in soul bands around town. And then some of the best soul bands in town, a uh, big 10-piece soul band by the time I was 17, 18, 19. And then right around 1920, I got the itch to not be in a cover band and not do that anymore and started playing in bands where we wrote our own songs. And what year would this have been? 69, 70. Okay. And then, how did deal. you get better as a drummer? Is it just playing gigs and playing gigs? Back then, uh, there was there. I could have gone and taken lessons, but I kind of never did. I mean, I absorbed things and absorbed how to play rudiments, and and I didn't work on. It. I always went with feel. I just learned to play with feel. I really played with feel for a long time before any I got anything technical going on as a drummer. And know? was that ever? Did that ever work against you? Much later on. You know, and then when I moved, when I, by the time I, I moved to New York uh, in uh, 72, and I was there for a year and a half, two years, I wasn't living in a city. I was living out in the country with the band that I was with, but I went to the city and did sessions occasionally and did some gigs and we made a record. And then we, then I went on the road with Johnny Nash, right. who had, I can see clearly it has a hit previous to that. And, and then I got offered an opportunity to go to London. And at that point, Growing up in Houston, the three years before I left Houston, three or four years there at least, maybe more, I became a studio drummer. I just became, because I had a feel, you know, and I could play a pulse and keep a feel and play a song. And, and I you always, didn't have to read charts. And I didn't have to read charts. Okay. But I learned early to read notation. You know, I couldn't read, you know, right. scales, but I could read notation, you know, and I, enough to be able to, like, know what the rhythm was and stuff like that. So at this point, yeah, are you thinking I'm going to be a musician? Yeah. At what age would that be? 1920. 20. And was there any struggle before that you made that decision? Like, what, did everything come easy to you? I mean, pretty you buy, much. You buy your drums and you're playing a gig that night. Pretty much everything just kind of happened really natural. Wow. Very natural for me. I didn't, it didn't, I didn't struggle. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't like I got any encouragement. Uh, it wasn't like I got any special 
I was independent financially by then. I made my own money. They didn't give me an allowance, blah, blah, blah. I bought my own clothes. I lived at home. I bought my own car. You know, I was self-sufficient. And I always had that in me. And I couldn't wait to get out of the house because right. of that self-sufficiency and the fact that I wanted to be free. And, and I wanted the space for my brain to be as creative as possible. I didn't realize it then. I Obviously, I do now. And I did after a while once I realized being creative was really, really happening. You know, and allowing yourself to be as creative as possible. You know? Creative in the way that you played the drums, the play, you and notes. writing songs and musically. And I got I got studio wise early. I learned how to engineer a little bit. I was I was good in the studio. I could be the second engineer if we were recording. I could tape, change a tape. I could plug in. I could, you know, twist knobs and everything. And I don't do that now. I have someone do it for me yeah. when I produce. But but I learned all that at an early age and had a real passion for recording and figuring out. What happens when you hit something and the noise of that goes into a microphone and it's transferred to back then tape? You know, I learned all of that a long time ago. So and with your studio work and now moving to New York, and which led to a trip to London. London in 74, and I worked for Island Records for the first year I was there. As a studio musician. Yeah. yeah. So are you thinking, I want to be a studio musician? Or are you thinking yeah, I want to be Yeah, that's kind of where I was plugged in. Okay. And then I got an offer to be in a band called Backstreet Crawler with Paul Kossoff who was the guitar player from Free. So, an amazing guitar player. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and well-respected. Yeah. From your point of view, and having close proximity to this creative genius, tell me your opinion about Paul Casa. Paul, when he was on, was very special. He was his own type of guitar player. He had a very special touch and feel, and, and he found the notes a certain way, in a very natural way. And I, I, I really discovered that at one point for a while there where he stayed sober for a little while. And we I took him to a blues gig in Houston. And he got up and he sounded like Albert King. And it, I went, oh, damn. But then I didn't know you could actually play blues like that. you know. And I realized that's where it came from yeah, inside yeah. him. He had it. He was the same way. He had no technical knowledge or ability at all. And, uh, it, and had he not been... You know, as, as strong out as he was, which is really, really sad and very, very hard to deal with because mm -hmm. that's how he died uh, eventually, um, he would have probably been able to be a star in his own right with our band. You know, we were signed to Atlantic by Ahmet Erdogan. And Ahmet, as far as he was concerned, he was going to try to make us the next Led Zeppelin or whatever mm -hmm. record companies did with bands back then. And it just never happened because of Paul's addiction. So when you when you go through an experience like that, how does that affect you? Because this is your I'm, first I'm, big honest, Honestly, Michael, I was I was a bit I was a bit. Well, I was put off by it. I didn't really want to join that band when 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 I was given the opportunity to do it. I turned it down in my head. And my bass player buddy that I was in in London with said, "Come on, give it a try." We were in a cab on the way to Ireland that day, where we were going to go sign and agree to do it. And I said, "Terry, I'm not going to do it. I." I I want to do something else. I want to f pursue the studio side, more the creative side. I don't want to be in a hard blues rock band. Can I, I ask you why? Because, I mean, it just seems like that's a, a big band with a big label behind it. There's a opportunity for stardom or this bigger life. I wasn't, I wasn't tempted by that. Okay. I wanted to follow the creative approach that I was after. And it's probably why I'm the way I am now. I'm kind of my own boss. And I have been for like, forever. I've never had a manager get me work. I never had anybody take care of anything. I've taken care of every. That's why I'm a producer. You know, I 
initiate the conversations. I have, I monitor the songwriting and write down every little word. You know, I mean, I'm not anal about it. I, I, I'm, my job is to to realize the artist, the artist's vision, and and expand on it. You right. know, and, and 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 then make it happen. Turn it into something that sounds good, that everybody wants to hear. That's my job. So, I've always been that kind of guy. And I didn't really realize it back then till I decided I wanted to start producing. And I didn't think about producing way, way back then. But sometime in the late 90s, I went, something's itching, you know what I mean? I've got to check this out. And I, and I actually, I started talking to friends of mine that were producers and big time engineers and they all kind of went, yeah, 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 sure. And I didn't out of spite try harder I just wanted to try harder and, and next thing you know a few things fell in my lap and um, how did they fall in your lap because you showed interest or you show interest and you direct yourself towards something and it can come to you and you really have to open up and let it happen and we were doing records with John Porter producing for Taj Mahal Buddy Guy Kev Moe Otis Rush all these different artists that we, we were playing on this group of guys later became the Phantom Blues Band. Right. So that that would have been a studio band as well. Like yeah, we were a studio band. We started pretty much as a studio band. Right. For Taj Mahal, that's that's how right around that time, and we were playing on things that John Porter was producing, and of course everybody in the band was playing on other people's records as well. But that was kind of our focus, and now we were we were honing our style as that. You so know? I mean, I moved like... to Los Angeles in 1979 after London, and what, which is where I was going to move in the first place when I moved to New York. I was going to move to, Nashville, uh, to, to, to Los Angeles. I didn't. I went to New York instead. When I got back from New York, I was going to move to Los Angeles. Instead, I got the opportunity to go to London. I got back from London and I went, I'm going to Los Angeles. Because why? Because I wanted to be a studio musician and I wanted to be out where it was all happening. I wanted to be part of the, the fray. I wanted to be part of the whole the, the system. I wanted to be part of the business. I wanted to be where all the great players were. I wanted to be all the musicians, players, and artists were. I wanted to be in the middle of all that creativity. Did you ever, at that point, like, how confident are you of your drum skills? I'm, I'm okay. I know. Uh, you no, know, I mean, I, not now, but I, I, during this whole thing. I, 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 I was, I don't, I, I didn't doubt myself. I knew I didn't have the technical abilities that some guys did, you know. Uh, but as a studio musician, you have to be no, pretty well. No, the simple, the, simple, the simple side of it I had down. Right. Playing the song, I had that down. And I learned my drum fills from Al Jackson Jr. and Benji Benjamin and, and all the drum fills that I needed to learn. And I learned of the fields of John Jabo Starks and, you know, and the shuffles and the sanctifieds. And then I learned to play a mambo and I learned all Al Jackson Jr.'s style. I listened to those records and just by listening to all those masters. And then I picked up on the New Orleans stuff as well and learned to play second line and street beat and, you know, and, and, uh, from Earl Palmer and Zigaboo Modaliste and Smokey Johnson and all those guys, you know. And that came easy to you? Kind of. Certain things have really come to me. It, it, certain things have really come easy to me. Playing with Johnny Nash's band, half the band was Ghanaians. There were four Ghanaians in the band and four guys from Texas. The rhythm section was Texan, and the horns and the percussionists were from Ghana. And they would hold me down after rehearsal and say, Tony, don't go anywhere. And they would make me sit and they would teach me rhythms. And they would throw these West African rhythms at me. And, and it, it just, I took to it like hopping on a horse and riding. And I carried those things in that spirit and that vibe of where they put the beats and everything. And the way they 
structured those beats and the way they played them in that in that that pattern to everything not to everything but I, I took that as part of my style then and now I would use that in other things as well how to be upright with this how to swing this you know what I mean and and, and uh, it was a great learning experience it was one of the several game changers that happened for me that was one that happened you know and then when I moved to Los Angeles I I got a I got well when I lived in London. I got a, I got work because of the reputation of being a guy from Texas with that Texas feel. And at that time in England, they were looking for that swampy Southern United States American feel. Right. And uh, and and I worked a lot because of that. You know, very simple, straightforward, rootsy style. And then when I took that to to Los Angeles, I was moving more sophisticated, which is why I didn't want to join Crawler. Baxter Baxter Crawler in England because I wanted to be more sophisticated and learn more and study and I wanted to go up in right. a few levels as a drummer. But, but you did join the band for a while. I, jo- I joined the band. I was there. Right. You know, I co- Terry and I ended up being the co-producers of just about everything we did, whether we had a producer or not. And we handled a lot of this. We kept we kept a lot of the business and everything together just because we had those that type those types of personality. I'm sorry, this is not working. Let's fix it. You know. And, and so when I did move to Los Angeles, I aspired for that more technical side. And the, one of the first gigs I got was Eric Burden, you know, doing animals and material. Played on a recording. Went on tour with him to Australia, went to Europe, did a movie, blah, blah, blah. Got to be really good friends with Eric in 1980, 81. So it's not like you, you're not thinking you don't want to tour. It's... But you want to base yourself out of a studio? You want to do? More I want to be. I want a studio, but I want to tour as well. Okay. I want to be able to do both. And you and you, back then you kind of did one or the other. So the studio suffered a little bit when I took road gigs. But when somebody was back then was paying you a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a week, that was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And you know you could put that away and live for months afterwards. And then I would come back and I would work in the studio. And I started to build up a little bit of a reputation in the studio. And then. I got called for uh, a Ricky Lee Jones gig, and I had to go and woodshed Steve Gadd because he played on all the records. So oh. that was like another game changer. It's like going to school, go study Steve Gadd. Now, is that an easy thing to study? I mean, as great a drummer that he is, just to say, okay, I need to play like him. <laughs> like, I can't now, imagine. I, how he... I don't, you know, easy, hard. I don't know. It, it was a challenge. It was certainly a challenge, and I and I got stuck into it. And then when I. I it, it's a sensibility that I have. When I got started, when I play, started playing the music, uh, it became easier because mm-hmm. the music explained to me why he did the things, or and vice versa. And you do the things because of the music, and I and I understood that at a very early age, and definitely then. And then it developed a side of my playing that is different than being a blues drummer. You know, it's not a jazz thing, but it's closer to jazz, so I can kind of, kind of morph my playing styles you know I can be on stage and play some jazz and go straight to a blues shuffle or a hard rock beat or James Brown funk you know in the same set I can so it'd be, it, my versatility my versatility really broadened at that point did and, you ever go through a tough time oh yeah oh, of course yeah like what would that because everything you're telling me see I, I uh, guess the backseat call is I think you, fine, I think but. I think when you want to do something bad enough Tough time, good time, they're all part of it. And did you ever doubt what you were doing? Oh, several times, yeah. Uh, in the beginning, but once I get to that point, once I kind of got to the New York spot, I didn't doubt it anymore. 
after that. I really did. I, I thought, I'm on my way. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And did you have a vision of what that thing would be? Or what the ideal goal was? Uh, it, I probably, if in the back of my, your mind, you're thinking, I'd like to be in a band that's very successful. I'd like to go on tour. I'd like to be in a bus or ride on a jet. Uh, you know, private jet. And and I'd like to eventually live in a mansion in Los Angeles at the beach in Malibu or something like that. You right. know? That's an, and, and, it, and you don't grow up with that, but at a certain point, you see the different levels as you go, and you think, man, it would be great if I make a lot of money doing this. Right. And you've worked with some huge artists. Quite a few. Yeah. Quite a few big-name artists. You know, I mean, I went from the Ricky Lee Jones tour to the Bette Midler tour and did a show with Bette. So I learned that. Right. That's a whole other side. And then I went to from that to Bonnie Raitt, and I got back to my roots. And that reestablished me in Los Angeles as more of a roots drummer, which moved me away from being part of the jazz funk scene like Larry Carlton and, and all the Jeff Picaros and all those people. Right. It moved me away from that a little bit, put me back in my rootsy side. But it was so, also like one of our big albums, right? Like, wasn't that Nick of Time? Was that I, played on, yeah. I played on Nick of Time, yeah. I played on a couple of records, yeah. Some of the records. So I it's not on, just your basic rootsy thing, but a very successful. No, but very successful. Yeah. Well, it, was, it wasn't in the beginning when I first started playing with it, but later on, the success, the success came. So yeah, and and I and I and I embraced that and lived with that and went, okay, that works. I'll do that. And so uh, I carried on doing that. And then it, after the Bonnie gig, I I took a, a funk band gig. Uh, Jack Mackin Heart Attack, and then I started doing studio work for John Porter, and that's how I'm at Taj Mahal, which turned into Phantom Blues Band on the road with Taj Mahal, making five records, five Grammy nominations, and winning two Grammys. Right, and being a producer. One I won as a producer, and that's right. how my producing, that's what really kicked my producing into gear. It was in 1998, we recorded a show at the Mint in, in Los Angeles, and John Porter was going to produce it, but there was a rift between John and Taj at the time. So John didn't show up. And I told Taj, John on the phone, I said, look, don't worry, I got, I got it together. I got the setup for the studio. For, I got the engineer. I got everything in, in line. You know, we're going to record this. Don't worry. We recorded three nights, two shows a night. I made sure that all the recording went well. I took dat tapes of every t speech that he had. I had it all together. And I had already in my mind said, without telling anyone, I'm going to produce this. And the guys were just watching me sort of run it and take, take, but not questioning me. And I was getting money from the management to get in the studio and start processing and blah, blah, blah. And finally one day, the manager of the band goes, Taj Manager goes, well, l let me ask, wait, who's producing it? Uh, I kind of thought John Porter was going to said, doesn't look to me like John's in it. And he goes, well, who's producing it? And I was quiet. And he goes, I guess you are. And I said, I guess I am. And so I spent the next year on and off working on that until I honed it down to a perfect 12-song, 48 minutes of, of a show that you could put on as a record and listen to it and enjoy it and not wonder where the popcorn was or anything. That's Shouting Key, right? Shouting Key. Yeah. We won and a then, Grammy in 2000. So you... Well, one, you're working with a big name mm. and also winning a Grammy, so you've seen success. And that's your debut as a producer. Yeah, pretty Obviously, much. that helps getting other people to come to you. And That little statue opens up a lot of doors. Did you, did you see that immediately? Yeah. 
it was surprising. I was told by some friends of mine that were multiple Grammy winners that you know in Los Angeles, but engineers and producers, call me up, pat me on the back. Well, you're now known as Tony Bronigle, the Grammy Award-winning producer. I went, yeah, I don't know. What are you talking about? I don't get it. I don't get it. No, I, I didn't accept that. Like, yeah, hey, man, I'm boasting. Here's my Grammy. Right. I went, oh, well, I just did the work, and that's the way I've always looked at it. And um, next thing you know, we won. I mean, no, we won the Grammy, and then my friend said this to me, you know, and I said, I don't, okay, fine. Sure enough, in no time, doors started opening. And when I could feel that extra nudge that I had, that impetus, I tried to, like, follow it. And I started making more moves to produce. And So you said you you have this thing about drumming, and you have to drum. I presume you still have to drum. I still have to drum. Um, and are you thinking at this point, I'm going to drum less, and I'm going to become more of a producer? Like, is, is there a choice? And then, I had, then I didn't delineate going on the road. I, I still continue to go on the road with Taj, and after we took the break from Taj in 2003 or something like that, I, I've spent the next, uh, I went back out with it. I produced Eric Burden in 2003 after 17 years of not talking to him, and I produced the, his first record that I did with him. And then I started going on the road with him a little bit after he fired his band. And then not a lot, not too much. And then I'd come back and I'd produce another record. One and, what, or two. and what are you thinking about the road? Are you still enjoying the road? Or are you thinking yeah, not as much? And, and and then I I got to the point where I didn't go on the road up until uh, I mean I was several years I took off didn't go on the road and I was working on the TV show as an actor and I was doing dates with the Blues Brothers and and Jim Belushi and doing corporate stuff and Belushi and Aykroyd and then sometimes just Belushi and I was playing with local bands around town and doing sessions and producing a record every once in a while and I didn't want to go on the road and then. I was I was asked in probably 2006 or 2007 to join the Doobie Brothers, and I knew some of the guys. I've been friends with them for a long time, and I just said, you know, when the manager called me and offered me the, told me what the, the yearly salary neighborhood figure would be, I went, I don't, I don't know. I don't really want to smell the diesel that bad, you know. And he, no, and but I, said, I mean, it's an extraordinary amount of money, or. Not as much as you thought it was. a hundred thousand dollars a year, and I figure, well, I'm already making that, and I don't have to go anywhere. I was actually doing pretty good in town, and I said to the manager, whom I also knew for quite some time, I said, "Hey, Bruce, make me a member, because I know that's worth a quarter of a million a year at least." He goes, "Oh man," I said, "You know how long I've known these guys?" He goes, "Yeah, I just can't do that. Try it out for a while." You know, let's give it a year and so make me a mem- member, and then you will join the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, eh, I can't do this. Well, I don't think I'm going to do it. And they had some other guys in line as well that they were talking to. So I said, I'm going to turn. I'm not even going to show up. I'm, I'm go- I don't want to do it. I don't want to go on the road. Right. And I was happy being at home with my wife. We were happily married. And then a couple of years later, we're not so happily married. Because <laughs> you stayed home? No, I'm just kidding. I could be. She was traveling back and forth to Nashville as a songwriter and doing really well. And that also helped some of those years because my wife had two number one hit songs wow. in Nashville. And um, and she and was and one of them was a Grammy no- nomination as well. I don't want to talk about that. There are yeah. other aspects of that I don't want to talk about. Anyhow, she left, and then I was like, well, what am I going to do now? And I'm still working. I'm doing okay. My productions have come up to maybe one or two a year, you know. And um, 
Um, then I got a call from uh, my bass player buddy, Richard Cousins, that Robert Cray was going to change his rhythm section. And that Richard Cousins, who was his original bass player, Cousins was coming back. And he said, Robert said to him, I'm thinking about changing drummers too. And the drummer was a good friend of mine, Kevin Hayes. I felt bad, obviously, to take his place, but hey, that's what happens, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, and I called him. I called Kevin on the phone when I got offered the gig. I said, hey, I just want to let you know I got offered this gig, and I'm, we're still friends. He goes, yeah, it's not your fault. And he felt bad about losing the gig. But anyway, I got called for the gig, and I didn't say yes for months. And finally, Richard said, look, man, you got to make up your mind. You want to do this. And my wife had just left, and we had split up. And I, I kept the house and stayed in the house, and I went, yeah, I'll go on the road. So I took the Robert Craig gig for four years. And a great time playing with Robert. A lot of great music. He's an excellent guitarist and singer and songwriter. We had a ball. Did that for four years. That got me back on the road thing. At the end of that, I went, actually, okay, I need to get maybe get back to my producing work, focus more on that. And then Eric offered me the gig back again, Eric Burden. <laughs> This is my third time with him on the road now, over the, all the years. And um, so I took it, and we worked another four years. And at the end of that four years, I'm like, what am I doing? And now I'm making three records a year and on the road. Right. That's a lot of work. And you've, you've joined the Millie Mile Club in two airlines. Uh, at least two. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so... <laughs> I just decided I was about to I was about to leave the band. I was about to give my notice. The day I'm thinking, sitting here thinking very strongly about just writing them an email, going, you know, I love you. I just don't want to do this anymore. I get an email from them. We're we love you. We don't want you anymore. We, we're firing the whole band and getting a new band. I was in the middle of a, a, a sound check with the Blues Brothers, and I went, oh, I just got fired. And somebody goes, what? Yeah, off the burden gig. And he goes, you know what? It's cool. They did me a favor. I wanted to quit anyhow. <laughs> Boom. Washed my hands. Kept kept rolling along. And that's that was in 2016. And I said, this gives me all of the drive to make sure that I get back to my focus and make this producing thing happen. Boom. I did four records that year. Five, six. Kept piling them up. I know I'm doing about five a year. This year, probably, if all goes as sort of planned, I'll probably hit eight. But you're still playing every so often. I still play with my friends. I have to go out and play gigs. Mm -hmm. I don't care if they're $50 gigs or $100 gigs or $500 gigs. I, I need to go out and play. I need to pack up my drums, put them in a car, drive somewhere, set them up, which I hate, <laughs> and play for two or three or four hours get my yaya's out, get that buzz back, put them in a car, drive home, go to bed, get up and go to the studio. If you joined the Doobie Brothers, somebody would have set up the drums for you. Every, every, everywhere, everybody I worked for, I, well, there was a drum tech. I always had drum techs. that I would arrive, pick up the drumsticks, play, put the drumsticks down, grab a towel, wipe my face, get off the stage. <sighs> what That's life. what I did for many, 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 many years. I have to wrap this up, but tell me what makes you a good producer. Oh, I don't know. I can't ring my own bell, but I think that what I said earlier uh, is I really try to focus on what the artist wants and what the artist needs. Hold on, sorry. Is this Mr. Purdy coming in here? It is indeed. 
Bernard. Just wrapping up the interview. Good to see you, brother. How you doing, man? Doing pretty good. Great, great to see you, man. It's great to see you, man. Thank you. Feeling good, feeling good. I won that award last night, and I was telling Mako earlier, I said, why didn't I have the presence of mind to call out one of the greatest drummers of all time that influenced me as much as he did? Sitting right here in the audience, I don't know why I didn't do that. I just I, was, I couldn't think when I was up there, you know. That's the way it goes. You, you know, and Jerry Jamont there, and, and I'm going, man, this is one of the all-star rhythm sections of all time. You two guys, all the incredible records you played on. But it was good. It was it great. Was good. It was good to watch. Well, I enjoyed that. Good. I'm glad you did. Yeah, it was fun. Bernard, would you mind if we just well just take two minutes if I could just actually sit right there? No, you can, you don't have to go anywhere. I'm about to wrap up. Yeah, I've been I'm talking too much already. So, that's great. Um, nice interruption there, huh? <laughs> no, I think that's important, though. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if I'll edit it out. It's, I think, worth keeping. But so, my final question was, what makes you a good producer? Um, well, I hope I'm good. I mean, I get keep getting asked back, you know, by artists. People come to me and say. I really like the sound of your records. I really like what you did with that artist. I like how you made that voice sound on that artist. I like the arrangements that there were on that artist, blah, blah, blah. The people are referencing records that I've made that they've heard. You know, I've got two or three in the blues charts right now and one in the AAA charts. And I've had three or four records a year out into the blues charts and all over the radio, all over the, the world. And, um, so there's enough of a reputation out there for people to know what my work is and what it sounds like and reference that. And so people come to me because of the attention that I pay toward them as an artist where I don't try to make them something they're not. I really try to enhance exactly who they are, but I often say to them, what you need here, you're a little too sweet. We need to give you an edge. I need to put a little bit of white trash Da 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 thing in your you know in your in your personality and I've done that to a certain female and she was like ah, I love that <laughs> and you know it's just trying to def define something that that inspires them and find that inspiration you know we talk about how neurotic artists are you got to live with that you got you've got to you've got to embrace that neurosis because that's where all that creativity comes from you know. This gentleman here worked with Aretha Franklin, and I'm sure he saw plenty of that. And I'm sure you can ask him that question, and he'll tell you. But he can't live without it. Sometimes it feels like it's a pain in the butt. Why are we putting up with all this craziness? You just got to find your way through it. And I think that's what makes me a producer, that some people are, you know, some people like my style. And God bless them. Thank you. I hope it continues. I hope I hope many more people like my style and I can make more records because it's very rewarding. I mean, I get paid at the end of the day, but but man, when that music's happening and I look at their face and I see how happy they are, boom, that's where I get paid. That's my reward. It was a real pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for doing this on such short pleasure. notice. And oh, but, thank you um, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah.